It's good to be with you again this morning and to have the opportunity just to share the Word of God with you. Like some of you here, I've been a Christian for a long, long time and for most of my life, most of my Christian life, I've been a preacher. But like many preachers over the last however long, I think I initially made a very a very significant mistake in the way I taught the scripture. Now you're all listening, aren't you? And that is that we we are inclined when we're teaching from the epistles to teach verses only as if they apply to individuals. It's very exciting what happens when you realise that the epistles were written to the church. They were written to the collective people of God so that it's important that as well as applying it to individuals, we should think about what would happen if a local church obeyed the things that Paul says. And the question I'm going to ask today is, What would happen, what would the church look like if they put on the whole armour of God? You've you've heard this passage preached on many times. You've been challenged to to take wear the whole armour of God. I'm going to ask the question, what what would the church look like? A local church look like if it really took seriously the command to put on the armour of God, okay? You want to travel that journey with me? You don't have any choice, really. (laughs) Just before I start, I want to say that uh, at the back um, is a book I've just released called Now That Is The Church. I'm passionate about the church right now. I I, I love the church, but I'm, I'm saddened by what I see across the world when we look at the church. I'm saddened by churches that no longer preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saddened by churches that have replaced making disciples with social action. There's nothing wrong with social action and it's important, but we have one commission from the Lord Jesus and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and to make disciples and to baptise them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A survey was taken of Melbourne churches, all Melbourne churches, some some years ago now, and of all the churches that believe in believers' baptism, adult baptism, the Baptist Church, the Brethren Churches, the Churches of Christ, Pentecostal Churches, Of all those churches in Melbourne, the average number of people baptised in each church over 12 months was one. Now when you you think that there are some churches that do very clearly make disciples and like our church at Berwick that year we had 60 people baptised. So take some of the big churches out of it 
And you've got to ask the question, why are there churches who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in the redemptive work of Christ, believe in the fact that we need to receive Christ as our Saviour, why do they baptise nobody in 12 months? And perhaps more than that, why haven't they baptised people for many, many years? Now, I don't know what the situation is here at Montmorency and I didn't ask anybody quite deliberately uh, because you won't think I'm having a go at you, but, but it is important to ask that question because the reality is that while worship is important and God calls us to worship him, gives us good reasons to worship him, while other types of ministries, playgroups and, 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 uh, food, food uh, banks and so on are all very important. They are, they are the ways by which we express the love of God. But as I said before, the commission that we've been given is to make disciples. To, to bring men and women, boys and girls, into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to disciple them to be, to walk with the Lord and to grow in Him. That's, that's, that's the truth. We can't avoid that. So my challenge in this particular book was it's time to ask that question, the local church to ask those questions. It's time to see what might block the flow of, of the love of God through the church to the community resulting in people coming to Christ. Now, there's lots of things said about the church in, uh, in, in the epistles, in the gospels. And we're not only told what we should do in terms of making disciples, but we, we are told how we as the representatives of Jesus on earth, how we as the body of Christ, with him as our head, how we should live communally together the importance of love and forgiveness and acceptance being things of flow in the body because as Jesus said that's the only way that people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so the basis of an evangelistic church is the the relationship between the believers and the way we reflect Jesus to each other. Now that's a challenge because we're all in different places. We're all in different places in our lives. Some of us feel we're in a good place. Some of us know that we're in a difficult place. Life life is difficult. Life has many challenges. And that's part of what loving each other is about. It's knowing what those challenges are. It's ministering the love and the grace and the mercy of God to people who are wounded and who are hurt. So I just wanted to say that this morning because it leads up to what I want to say about 
what would it look like if the church were to put on the whole armour of God. I'm a bit worried about this morning because for the first time in 30 years I'm not using my old battered preaching Bible. Uh, it's had to be retired. And I have a Bible that was given to me this week called the Complete Jewish Study Bible. And I just can't put it down. I mean, I love the Bible anyway, but just to read the New Testament in the light of Jewish tradition and Jewish language and and the Old Testament theology is really very exciting. And um, so I hope it won't let me down this morning. Um, I know where everything is in my old one. And so we've just got to learn that as we go on. So last week when I spoke on Ephesians 4, I gave a bit of a rundown first of the first three chapters of Ephesians. So now when we come to chapter 6, I need to give you a quick rundown of chapter 5 because it's really important what he says to Christians in chapter 5. He says that we ought to imitate God. He says to these Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians who are meeting together, who have broken down the barriers that have stood between them for generations, he's saying, live a life that imitates God. That's a huge thing to say. And so he's got to be speaking about the things about God that we have been given the power through the Holy Spirit to imitate, okay? So holiness is not, uh, uh, complete holiness is not one of them. But there are things we know about God and one of them is his unconditional love. And we are asked to imitate his unconditional love. In Romans, Paul says, accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. And we are called to be accepting of other people, knowing every person has a backstory, every person has a reason for being who they are and where they are. And we are called, like to, to be like God in that matter and to accept them unconditionally. And, and he's told us that we are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. So imitating Christ in those three areas is what God is calling us to do. And, and it, it, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy. I think the challenge for acceptance and love in today's world is really very hard. And we find ourselves saying, well, surely there must be some people that we could not possibly accept. Or surely there's some people we could not possibly love. Well, I think you've got to take that up with God. Because if that was true, none of us would be here. And so I find my, myself uh, in my 80s now still learning more and more about what it means to be loving, accepting and forgiving 
like God, like my Father. And the, the, the reason we can do that, the reason it's possible is that we are receiving every day, if we, if we choose to, we are receiving every day the unconditional love and forgiveness of God. Every day. It's a blessing he pours out on us. And then we have the, the privilege of reflecting that to the people around us. I, you, you may have heard me say it before, but it's a little bit like, like the moon, isn't it? The moon in the, in the sky is the greatest of all reflectors. And because it's, it's got no power to generate light, but because it's in the right place at the right time to catch the light rays of the sun, it can reflect them to where we stand. That's how we are. We are receivers of that unconditional love and forgiveness in order that we might reflect it to the world around us. So he says, imitate God. And then he says that you, you used to be darkness, but now, united to Christ, you are light. That's a, a good message, isn't it? It's a good word, a good promise that we once walked in darkness, we once carried darkness in our lives, but now we are the light. We are lights in the world and we are to take God's light into the world. Then he says, the fruit of the light is in every kind of goodness, righteousness and truth. So there is fruit that is born in our lives as a result of our relationship with God. We know the fruit of the Spirit in terms of love, joy and peace and kindness and gentleness. And, and that, that fruit is born in us. We must not only be believers in that, but recipients of that. We must actively receive what God has given to us in order that we might reflect it to others. And he, he also, in chapter 5, talks to husbands and wives and indeed all Christians and tells us that we are to love, submit to and respect each other. Now I know... Uh, we have had traditionally had big arguments about uh, what submission means, but uh, be reminded that before he talks about that, he says to Christians, submit to one another. So submission means to lay down my ego, lay down my desire for power, lay down my desire for control, and to submit to one another, to, to serve one another, to, to put each other before ourselves. And not only are wives told that to do that, but husbands are told to do that too. And husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wow. Wow. I'm still working on that. I don't know about you, but that's a big, big...
big challenge. And we can only really do that through the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 6, he talks to the children, he talks to the fathers, he talks to slaves, and he talks to masters. And he tells them that that their imitation of God is seen in the way they relate to the key people in their lives. So the way children relate to their, their parents, the way fathers relate to their children, the way slaves relate to their masters and the way masters relate to their slaves. And it was interesting to hear Pat talking about his new job and uh, our workplace is, is your mission field. My brother who was who passed away a few weeks ago, he was a, a pastor for a long time and he used to do something that I've never heard another pastor do. He would deliberately visit his members of his church in their workplace. He would make an appointment, he would call in for lunch, he would sit in the lunchroom and he would talk, he would share with them. And when they would say to him, why, why are you doing this? You know, we're supposed to come to the church, not the church come to us. That's not true, is it? And he used to say, because you are the missionary, a missionary from our church. God has placed you in this workplace in order that you might reflect Jesus and lead other people to Christ. We're called to be Christ in every place. Whether we're a father relating to our children, whether we're a master relating to a slave or a slave to a master, we are called to be reflectors of Christ. Then finally, when we get to verse 10, in chapter 6, he says, Finally grow, this, this is from the Jewish Bible, Finally grow powerful in your union with his mighty strength. Grow powerful in union with his mighty strength. What a great, a great way of putting it. I think the authorized says something about be strong in the Lord, but, but this is a, this is about what it's like to walk in the Spirit of God. That as we trust Jesus, his strength becomes our strength. Now life can be really difficult and some of you might be going through difficult times at the moment. Where do we get the strength to deal with life? I'm, uh, I was Last night I was preparing a, a message. I was supposed to be sleeping, but I was couldn't stop my mind working and was preparing a message for a devotion I have to give to pastors this week. And I, I wanted to I wanted to help them understand that whatever that that when Jesus talks about life abundant, he's not saying therefore you'll have no problems. Therefore you won't have people who drive you mad. Therefore you 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 won't have difficulties in relationships. He's saying when you do, 
the life that I have given you brings with it abundant peace, abundant wisdom, abundant joy, abundant freedom to be what Christ has called you to be. Understand that. You must understand that. He has given us abundantly all that we need in every circumstance and situation of our lives. And we can trust him for that. We can believe in that. So in chapter 6 and verse 10, he also says, put on the whole armour of God. And why is that so? For we, so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, but against the rulers, authorities and cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So take up every piece of war equipment God provides. So when the evil day comes, you'll be able to resist. And when the battle to, to, battle is won, you will still be standing. Therefore stand. And then he goes on and says, put on the belt of truth. He was probably in a prison at the time he was writing this, Paul, and was probably looking at Roman soldiers on a, on a frequent basis in their armour. And so he takes this picture and he shares it with the Christians to whom he's writing. And the, the armour is very impressive, but it wouldn't stay on the body without the belt. And there was this large belt around it that held it all together and gave him mobility even though he carried this heavy armour. And, and, and Paul saw the belt in our lives as the belt of truth. What happens when, what would happen if the church universal, what would happen if the church in Australia, what would happen if the church in the city of Melbourne was to take that literally and say, we are going to put on in order to stand against the evil adversary, Satan, we're going to, to put on the belt of truth. We're going to hold everything together in our church based on the truth, the redemptive truth of Jesus, the truth that he alone saved from sin, the truth that it is by grace alone that we are saved. And the truth that those who come to him and repent of their sin and receive Christ will be saved. The truth that he has adopted us as his children and we are his children and he is our father. The truth that, that we are the church placed here by God as a body being Christ in every place. That's the truth. And when that truth is is the foundation on which we stand, 
the foundation on which we stand, it, 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 it changes the whole life of a church. It changes the life of the church. The church becomes motivated to be Christ in their community in every way that it is possible and particularly in the presenting of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it look like if we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Part of the Roman armour was the, the breastplate that covered the, the chest of the, the soldier. What, what is a breastplate of righteousness? What is, what does that mean? Does it mean that we are to work really hard to become as righteous as possible? Well, of course we should, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that the righteousness that we wear that protects us is our righteousness. It's not to be self-righteousness. It's not to be uh, a fake righteousness so everybody will think well of us. It's supposed to be the righteousness of Christ. It's his righteousness that enables us to stand before God. You understand that? One day, right now, you and I stand before God every day of our lives. When we've come here today to worship, we have stood before God. And you know the scary thing? He knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. He knows my heart. He knows I'm not always where I should be in relation to him. He knows the bad decisions I make. He knows the good decisions I don't make. But he stands and part of his righteousness is his love and his grace and his mercy. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to take on ourselves the righteousness of Christ. We stand before God and he sees us. We, we don't see ourselves as righteous, but he sees us as righteous because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We have the righteousness of Christ and we need to wear that like a breastplate because when the evil one attacks us, as he does, and if he isn't attacking us, there's probably he's probably quite happy about the fact that we're not doing any damage. But if we are, he will attack us. You realise that? Do you understand that? And if we're going to stand against that, we need to be able to resist the fiery darts. And then he says that we are to put on the shoes of peace. The shoes of peace. The shoes for the Roman soldier were very important. They um, they enabled him to grip. They gave him uh, strength. They protected his feet. And in those days it wasn't un unusual for an enemy to spread glass and other cutting things around 
so that the enemy would come and, and hurt themselves before they took the city. And uh, so the, they wore a, a type of bronze shoe. Our mobility, our, our willingness to be where Christ wants us to be, our capacity to walk in his love, our capacity to stand against the attacks of the evil one depends on having the shoes of peace. What is this peace? Is it the sort of peace we are talking about when we say after a big day, a busy day, a hard day, we say, oh, it's good to have some peace around here. No, it's not that sort of peace. It isn't the... It isn't even the sort of peace that we feel when everything is going honky-dory. It's a peace that Jesus felt. My peace I give you. It was a peace he felt in the garden when he got his answer to his prayer, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And there was silence from heaven. Or maybe God did speak to him, we're not told. But what we do know is that in that peace he went to the cross. It was a peace he felt on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he said, into my hand, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That sort of peace. When the church takes that seriously, then the teaching in the church and the, and the, the message of that church, that local church, is about finding the peace of God in the challenges of life. To be able to stand against Satan and be able to say, we will not allow this peace to be damaged. Now, one of the things I've been doing over the last few years is I work with churches who have conflict. We shouldn't have to do that. In the, in the house of God, there will be differences of course, differences are good. It's good when someone brings a perspective that is important for the time and there will be differences, but there should not be conflict. Conflict is when we are reacting to the anxiety and the, anxious and the fear in ourselves towards somebody who is different or saying different things. If the peace of Christ rested upon the church, if the will, willingness to do God's will and to know that we're doing God's will and that brings peace, then it would make the church a different place. Now I'm probably talking to the converted here, but, but churches are being torn apart during COVID, the conflict in churches rose to an unprecedented level. 
When I wrote my book on conflict, I got calls from people all over Australia saying, would you consider coming and helping us with our conflict? Well, of course, I couldn't go. Because my health wouldn't stand up to that. But it broke my heart to think that the, that the reason the, the subject made sense to people was that that's where they were at in conflict right at that moment. Working with a church right now that, um, in Melbourne that is torn apart by the most horrific conflict you've ever seen. It could even, it could even end up in court. Breaks your heart. And then he says there's not only things you should wear, but there are things you should carry. And one of the things you should carry is the shield of faith. Now you need, it's, it's good to know that he goes from the armour to what you're going to carry in your right hand and what you're going to carry in your left. You're going to have a shield in one and a sword in the other. And this shield is the shield of faith, or my, my translation here uses the word trust. Faith is something we have. Trust is something we do. When we put our faith in something, we then have to step out in trust that what we have put our faith in is sound. So we have a shield of faith or trust to go forward into, into battle. Uh, I could say a lot about this, but, but I, I want to ask the question, what does it mean when a church makes this an important part of their lives? What, where is faith uh, focused on in church life? You say, oh, well, most of our sermons uh, in some way or other relate to faith. But I heard some of it this morning in the, in the share, prayer and share time. When somebody was prepared to share what God is doing for them, in their lives, that's that's the sort of trust, the, the the evidence of the trust they have in God, the evidence they have the, that they have faith in God. We need to share it. We need to tell our stories. We need to give our testimonies. Some of you will remember, or certainly we do, when when I was first saved, I belonged to a Christian endeavour. Do you remember Christian endeavour? You've got to be about 80 to remember it, but, but I remember it well. And we used to go along to Christian Endeavour on a Friday night. All the young people would be there and all the grandpas would be there as well. And grandmothers. And, and all the people in between. And one of the things that happened every Friday was that we had time for testimonies about what God was doing in our lives or what we were struggling with at that time. It's just amazing. Talk about being discipled. I was discipled more through that after becoming a Christian from a non-Christian background than anything 
else that I can imagine. To see a farmer, uh, to see the lady who was to become my mother-in-law, standing up in church and saying that last week my milking machine, the, the engine on my milking machine broke down and, and she was a widow with four kids and a hundred cows and she ran the farm and, and she would say, uh, uh, it broke down, I had all these cows in the yard and no way to milk them. And she said, I cried out to God and said, God, I need help. So she prayed and then she went in to, to look at the motor to see what she could do. And within a few minutes, a car turned off the Bass Highway down her road, drove up her drive and fixed the engine for her. Now, that's not... And that's not a coincidence, that's a God incidence. And it happens when we pray. And to hear those testimonies when I was a young Christian, to hear how a widow could talk about how God sustained her, and gave her the, the, the strength to run a farm and raise a family, that was, that was amazing. And then to hear young people getting up and giving their testimony, uh, the first time I heard it was just before I became a Christian. We went along to this Christian endeavour, I'm not quite sure why, and uh, and I saw Julia at 14 or 15 years of age giving her testimony. And I thought, she's weird. <laughs> now, she's talking about God as if he's real. But he he was real, he is real. And those stories... Those testimonies strengthen me. And I want to say, tell your stories. Find a way in your small groups. Find a way in your church services to share what God is doing because that builds faith. That builds our trust. And that's the shield that the church carries. And then he said... Um, we're to carry the sword given by the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Does the church, does a local church embrace the Word of God as the authoritative Word of God? Do we stand on that? Are the decisions we make based on that? Now I want to say something that's a little bit scary, but the truth is, that not all the traditions of the church are necessarily biblical. Examine them. Examine them in the light of scripture. Don't be afraid of change if change is necessary. The sword of the spirit. It's the sword that, that wins the war. The armor protects us but it's the word of God that we must take into the world in which we live. And then finally, he says we should have one more piece in our armour, and that's the helmet of salvation. Well, my translation says the helmet of deliverance. It's the, it's the mindset. 
that Jesus is our deliverer. He's the mindset. It's a mindset that the gospel we take into the world is a message of deliverance. You may have heard it thousands of times, but there are people out there who have never heard it once. A question that the church universal has to ask is how how well are we sharing Jesus with the world in which we live? The question is not how many people are we winning for Christ. The question is how well are we sharing the word of God? How consistently are we doing that? How are we doing that through all our programs in the church? We're thankful, aren't we, for for missions that have gone out into the world, missionaries have gone out in the world taking the gospel of Christ. Well, we have, we live in a non-Christian era in our city. We live in a, a, an era where children, teenagers and young adults have often never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a young lad about 13 years of age visiting our neighbour in the village in which we live and he always comes to talk to me for some reason and I kick a soccer ball with him and, and have a bit of fun with him and talk to him. And he, his name is Jesse and I said to him one day, you know, there's a man in the Bible called Jesse and he said, what's the Bible? What's the Bible? Now, he's not unusual. We live in a post-Christian era in Australia and we need to be reaching the masses for Jesus Christ. The local church has a responsibility in its neighbourhood. Now, I'm not saying these things to make you guilty. I'm saying these things to make you excited. There is a work to be done. There is a task to be completed. There is a God who will enable us to do that task, who will give us the vision, who will give us the strategies to do that. We've got to believe that. We've got to ask God to give us the courage as individuals and as a church to put on the whole armour of God. And then he finishes by saying, and pray at all times. And he says, pray for those who are Christians as well as those who are non-Christians. Pray for those who are being Christians at work. Pray for those who are being Christians in difficult places. Pray for those who are out there on the front line for Jesus. And then he says, pray for me too. Well, you can understand that, can't you? He is, he's in prison for Christ. He doesn't want to lose anything by being there. He wants the believers to pray for him. We have Christians today around the world who are in prison. We should be praying for them. Let's pray now. As I said last week, 
that this is a good time for you to make your own personal response to whatever God may have said to you through the service today. It may have been through the communion. It may have been through songs we sang. It may be through the reading of the word. It may be through the message. What did God say? What are you hearing? It might be encouraging. It might be, it might be discomforting. It might be affirming. It might be a challenge. But it's coming from the God of grace. It's coming from the God of all mercy. Coming from the God of love who loves you and loves the world with unconditional love. Whatever it is, respond now to him in prayer and say, Lord, thank you for speaking to me and tell him what your response is. Our Father and our God, we, we are, we are amazed at the depth of your mercy and grace. We are amazed at the way in which you have redeemed us and adopted us and made us your children. We're amazed that you continue to work in, in power in our lives. We thank you that we can become powerful through our relationship with Jesus. Not powerful people, but power filled by the presence of God so that we can stand against the evil one. And we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen.